The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit distributing your load and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 322 with guest Stephen Forte, recorded live Tuesday, February 12, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, providing the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who measures the quality of a meal by the size of the blast radius... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's our Thursday show. Richard Campbell is out there, and we're at Mix. Yes, we are. Are we having fun, buddy? I'm sure we are. Mix is a crazy show and, and weird, and I'm sure we've picked up a few bizarre recordings, and and we'll just have to give them to the listeners. This is my first time at Mix. I'm having an awesome time. <laughs> <laughs> Really, I am. Well, and, and by the time this show's out, I'll be on my way to SD West, because I was doing a two-conference week this week. Right. Let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right, hit me. So you remember a couple days ago, I talked about the app domain class. Right. Well, now I'm going to talk about a particular event on that app domain class. Yes, that's right. Events do fire when things happen in the context of your application. And uh, I'm talking about the Assembly Resolve event. Ah. And I went looking for this one because I was like, Assembly Resolve? That that seems interesting. What's that all about? Because I hadn't used it before. So the, assemb- the Assembly Resolve event fires whenever the common language runtime tries to bind an assembly and fails. You can use the add handler method to add an event handler to the application that returns the correct assembly whenever the assembly resolve event fires. So this is all about loading assemblies at runtime that uh, you know that you really don't know what they are and you're inspecting them and all that kind of stuff. So um, in further research, I found a really good article that describes all of this and shows you how to load an assembly uh, at runtime. It's called How to Load an Assembly at Runtime that is Located in a Folder that is Not the Bin Folder of the Application. <laughs> I hate it when they have titles that don't explain what the thing's about. Yeah, so that's the title. It's an MSDN article. It's from last year, uh, and it's at shrinkster.com slash vm6. So if you're interested in that whole assembly loading uh, stuff, which is really interesting, you can go to shrinkster.com vm6 and read all about it. Cool. So, got an email for us. I do indeed. And this one's entitled, Still Living the Calm Interop Lifestyle. Ah, yes. Hey, Carl and Richard. I just finished listening to show 314 with Adam Nathan on Popfly. I love that show. Yeah, it was good. And other such pursuits of his. I don't know how you guys put out shows so fast because I can hardly keep up listening and it only takes me an hour a show. 
Anyway, in the beginning of the show with Adam, you were discussing his book about calm interop and jokingly wonder if anyone still uses calm and worries about interop. I'm writing to tell you that Calm is very much alive and kicking. I work for a mid-sized web development company working in ASP.NET 2.0. One of our major clients uses VB6 for their internal call center application. Unfortunately, the web application that we have built and maintained for them has to use the same Calm API that they use for their internal call center app. As you can imagine, this is less than ideal for us because I feel like we still have one foot stuck in 1997 even as we try to stay on the cutting edge of the web. Luckily, Microsoft did a pretty good job of building the infrastructure for interacting with unmanaged code from the .NET world, and outside of the annoyance of having to re-register the COM library every time they update it, we are no worse for the wear. Thanks for putting out such an entertaining and informing podcast. Chris Barbero. We certainly know all about COM interop. We've done a lot of it. And as a matter of fact, um, the latest thing we've done is I did a DNR TV with Rob Windsor, Oh, yeah. From Toronto. And it was all about um, Com Interrupt with Visual Basic. Cool. And you remember when we talked to uh, John Rauschenberger about that VB Forms uh, Interrupt thing? Right, He yeah. started and he got the, the VB team on board. Well, that's actually now a product and it's part of the, the Microsoft offering. And, and uh, Rob does a demo of it. So it's Forms Interrupt. You can actually mix... VB6 and VBNet forms in the same application. How cool is that? That is pretty cool. And I just saw Rob Windsor at the Toronto Code Camp. And you and I are going to see him again at DevTeach in Toronto, week of May 12th. Excellent. Hope to see you there. You bet. And without any further ado, let's bring on our guest, our old friend Stephen Forte. He's a partner in the Accord Advisory Group, a global strategic consulting group. Prior, he was the chief technology officer and co-founder of Corazon, Incorporated, a New York-based provider of online market research data for Wall Street firms. Corzin was acquired by Wanted Technologies in 2007. Stevens also the Microsoft Regional Director for the New York Metro Region and speaks regularly at industry conferences around the world. He's written several books on application and database development, including Programming SQL Server 2008 from Microsoft Press, Prior to Corazon, Stevens served as the CTO of Zagat Survey in New York City and was also co-founder and CTO of the New York-based software consulting firm, the Aurora Development Group. He is currently an MVP, Ionetta speaker, and is the co-moderator and founder of the New York City.net Developer User Group. Steven has an MBA from the City University of New York at Baruch College. He is training for a return to Mount Everest this fall. You know him, you love him. Here he is, Stephen Forte, prior pizza man. Hey, guys. No pizza this time. So I thought you were retired. I thought you were just, like, done. Now you're with the Accord Advisory Group? Well, apparently I tried to retire, and everyone started saying to me, Steve, what are you doing next? What are you doing next? And I found, Carl and Richard, that sitting home and watching the Cartoon Channel was not an acceptable answer for them. (laughs) You're just, you got to do something. So I have to do something. So So, what exactly do you do at your new position? I'm just doing a lot of consulting, kind of um, working on a couple startups on the side and just really kind of plowing along, building applications, helping people scale websites, consulting for people that are looking for uh, distributed teams and helping companies figure out, um, you know, their development strategies and outsourcing strategies, stuff like that. Okay. So more of the same, really, just uh, doing more of the consulting stuff now. Pretty much. So today's topic is distributed development teams. I'm not going to say outsourcing because it's not necessarily outsourcing, is it? No, it is definitely not. Distributed teams is when any member of your team for an extended period of time works from a different location than the other members of the team. So it could be a guy is going through recovering from a medical procedure and is working at home for two or three months or even two or three weeks. Uh, basically, a distributed team is whenever your team members are just not all together in the same place. Software development so, is one of those professions that actually lends itself well to that. I think. Yes, it definitely does, Carl. And I think what happens is we have to realize that it's not a very easy thing to do, but at the same time, we can very easily mitigate any of the risks that come by not having the team together. So how do you... Well, first of all, what are those risks? The obvious one I can think of is loss of control, right? Yeah, I mean, that is a big risk. You, you have a lot of developers that are going to be working 
at home or working in a remote location, maybe a satellite office, maybe overseas, maybe you're outsourcing, maybe they're time zones away, and you lose that control. And more than control, it's really a communications breakdown. Yeah, right. Right. Try, you know, I've always said to people is you're going to have the same challenges communicating a design specification that to somebody that you're outsourcing to three blocks away or a team member who's working remotely. Or someone right? in or, your office, right? I mean, you could lose control of a developer working in your office. They could be goofing off. They could be doing stuff. It's the same thing. You might just notice it a little earlier. Absolutely. And I don't even think, I don't even really think about control insofar as the goofing off. While that does happen, I tend to give all the developers around the world the benefit of the doubt. I'm more thinking of losing control of that communication process where a developer is, you know, just not kept up to date as easy as they should be or as much as they should be. And then what happens? Requirements break down, communications break down, things start getting delivered, you know, not at the right amount of time. Why do we want to put up with this? I mean, why not just keep everybody in their cubes so you can keep an eye on them? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple of reasons why we're going to put up with this. Uh, the first one, as Carl said, is this technology does lend it. I mean, you know, our industry with the technology around it does lend itself to having high quality talent remotely. So there, may, there might be a guy who lives in the middle of nowhere in Alaska who happens to be able to be one of the best regex programmers on the planet. And you may need to hire that guy for two months on your project. And he's, you know, not willing to move to New York or to Vancouver or wherever you are. I just think the isolation works. Like being able to shut, if you're working in an office environment and you don't have a place where you have a door that you can shut and put up a sign, don't disturb, you know, that, that's, going to hurt you. I mean, I, I find it very difficult to work in a, in a room with a lot of other developers at the same time. And that is, a that is definitely a classic reason why a lot of developers tend to be, like to be isolated is they don't like the noise. You've all, we've all seen the Steve McConnell surveys that tell us, you know, one phone call, one interruption to a developer, you know, that takes them 10 or 15 minutes to get back on track. Right. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I measure my productivity in interruptions per hour. And for software exactly. development, it's got to be like 0.25. Or if zero. I get interrupted in four hours, it's messing up my flow. I'm with you. And it's, it's interesting is I, I sometimes try to book blocks of time where I turn off the computer, turn off the cell phone so I can't be interrupted. And, you know, by golly, they find ways to interrupt me, right? I mean, yeah. you know, there's knocks on the door from the, you know, from right. the postman, whatever it is. You right. know, there's always those interruptions. You can't avoid them, unfortunately, but we can do our best to mitigate them. You got to get a good sign, you know, do not disturb under penalty of death. Right. Working on important, complex stuff. The problem is people tend to become a little bit of the prima donna if they're separated, and, that, and that's one risk that, that needs to, of course, be mitigated. Yeah. But maybe, I don't know. I'm, now I'm thinking, like, if you had just have a few that are separated and the rest are together, I can see the sort of prima donna thing happening. But if everybody's in their own environment, um, you know, and everybody's remote, then I don't see it as such a big deal. I tend to agree, and... I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think there's small companies are trending in that direction to some degree in their, when they're looking at, let's say, an outsourcing model. And in the past, 10, 12 years ago, you would just go to the big companies in India, let's say, like in Infosys and say, you know, give me five developers or 10 developers and that's your IT staff. Or you go to IBM Global Services and they would run your entire IT operations. Now you're finding developers and they might be, you know, combined domestic and international. And they're not really augmenting your staff. They are your staff. And, you know, the trend is just to get the right person for the right job, you know, to some degree, you know, independent of where they're located. Well, and I also think that um, I think of the savings in the point of view of why have all this office space. If you can really virtualize the team, the office is really for meetings and nothing else. Exactly. And you might have a small presence in an office when you bring customers in with a conference room. But, you know, small, nimble, and agile companies can definitely get away with far less office space if they're going to have a lot of their developers work at home, a lot of their technical staff work at home. I make the argument that sometimes you might want to have as many members of the team as you can in, the, in one general geographic area, so then it's easy to get them together because nothing beats the face-to-face -face communication. 
do you find, and maybe this is specific to developers, but I think actually that's not true. I, I definitely find folks that don't communicate well in email. Like they say things in email that they would never say face to face. Yep. I, I tend to agree. And one of the rules I instituted back when I was CTO at, at Zagat, and we were, you know, I have probably the largest staff I've ever managed, you know, up to 40 something people, is I would find that people always seem to ask me for vacation time in email. And I, I just said, that's a little weird. I said, why don't you just come and ask? So I would not approve vacation over email to get them in. I didn't want them to get in that habit of kind of, I'm going to be really bold in email, but a wimp in person. So I, I was trying to kind of subtly communicate to them, hey, there's an importance of face-to-face communication. I'm going to say yes to your email request. I mean, I'm, go- I'm going to say yes to your vacation request, but I just want you to come, come have some, a minute and ask me in person. The other thing that worries me, especially about development, is thrashing. Although, admittedly, oh. I've seen guys in cubes thrash for a week. It just seems that if you're working from home and you're thrashing, it can be even worse. Thrashing meaning not have the answer to a problem, just sit there and stew on it for yeah, a long time. You go around and around in circles, not producing anything, and not just taking that step back and going, am I taking this the right way, or asking for help. Right. Yeah, this is one of my biggest complaints with all software developers, whether they're remote or if they're local to your office. And this is probably the most difficult one to mitigate without using a, without drastically changing your software uh, development methodology. And that's why, um, I've, that's the sole reason why about five years ago I moved over to Scrum, one of the agile methodologies, because the longest you can be thrashing is one day. Because if you come to the daily Scrum tomorrow and start telling me that you're thrashing on this topic, I'm going to take it offline and hook you up with, you know, somebody in the news groups or the forums or somewhere. Uh, to get you an answer. So how do you do that remotely? Because, you know, with phone conferences, you can always just be quiet and hide behind that. But if you're in a room and you're just sitting there quietly, somebody's going to notice you and, 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 you know, you're going to be expected to participate. Yeah, that's an interesting question. How does Scrum work with remote teams? Does video, uh, are video cameras good enough these days that they can actually get a bunch of people together? Well, interesting that you asked that because we, we use a couple pieces of technology that we would not be able to do. Just to let you know, we can talk about this later, as I've been managing some remote teams recently, and I have people in three different countries. I have some people in the United States, I have some people over in Egypt, some people over in Pakistan, and some of them are on the same teams. And we use a lot of technology to get that done, and it really comes to not letting them feel isolated. So there is a daily scrum. So as you said, you know, what do you do to make Scrum work in this type of environment is we use a pretty extensive use of um, TFS for obvious reasons, right, using the Team Foundation server for the central repository. And TFS has an eScrum little feature to it. And not many people know about it that we've downloaded, and it kind of allows you to use the burn-down lists and everything that you use in Scrum inside of TFS. But then the other piece of technology that is just invaluable is Skype. So what we do is we have a, a Skype cast, which is, you know, lets you have, you know, three or four devel- you know, developers on one call at the same time. And we actually have the people phone on in. And it's pretty difficult to hide because it's my job as the scrum master really to just say, okay, you know, Bob, your turn. Joe, your turn. I literally sit there and um, with a checklist and make sure everyone's spoken. And, and that's pretty much all I do. And I facilitate the, um, the Skype conversation that way. We've also kind of manipulated Scrum to work in reverse. Traditionally, Scrum, you have that daily Scrum at 9 a.m. when everybody walks in the door. I actually do it around 9 a.m. New York time. So it's the end of the day overseas. So instead of answering the questions, you know, what am I going to do today? They answer the first question is, what did I do today? Hmm. And then what am I going to do tomorrow? And what do I need from you during your daytime, you know, while I'm sleeping, right. um, what do I need from you so I can do my job tomorrow? Yeah. It's interesting that you're exploiting the time zone difference so that they're giving you your marching orders at the beginning of your day. Hmm. And they actually kind of like that, to be honest with you. They, they, they find that kind of interesting that, um, you know, they get to kind of almost tell me what to do at the end of the day. And they're always proud you know, I know traditionally Scrum is not a status meeting, and it's a, it's a difficult challenge not to let it evolve into one. And I say that you're successful if they don't evolve into kind of a status or a, or a brainstorming kind of problem-solving meeting. You know, if, if you can prevent that 50% of the time, you're pretty successful. 
And exactly that. They give me my marching orders during the day, which usually has to do with, you know, I need permissions on this particular database because I'm, I'm kind of the owner of all the equipment that they're, you know, the database software and the servers. So I have to make sure that they have permissions on those tables or on those particular, you know, that particular project in TFS or something, or they need a piece of data from the, from the customer or a question answered. So I get that information from them during my daytime and email them that it's done. And it motivates me because I know if I don't do it before I go to bed at night, you know, they're not doing anything tomorrow. Right. You know, they're going to be sitting there twiddling their thumbs. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zoom MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zune. Uh, maybe we need to do a little bit of Scrum definition, uh, just for the folks that aren't as familiar with it. And yeah, you spat out a couple of terms there right away, uh, like burndown lists. Okay, right. So, you know, Scrum is one of the agile methodologies, and I know I might be sparking some religious wars here or there, but let's just kind of leave it at that at a very high level. Scrum is similar to XP, where you have short, iterative, kind of what Scrum calls them as sprints, usually between a week and a month. 30 days is about the maximum. And what happens is, you have something called a burn-down list, and the burn-down list is kind of all of the features to build the product. And you put as many of them as in that you can think of, and then you start a sprint, and you choose, based on priority order, which of those features you're going to work on for this particular sprint. And that burn-down list becomes a deliverable at the end of the sprint, you know, the two weeks, three weeks, you know, one-month sprint. And the goal is to have a production-quality code and shippable software at the end of that, you know, particular sprint. So you're literally trying to make something you ship every month or if not sooner. Exactly. So there is a constant feeling of shipping software. And I'll tell you, it changes the mindsets of a developer. I always like to say if you have a one-year project, break that into, find a way to break that into 12 deliverables, even if only maybe two or three of those deliverables will ever see real production, but make sure you have production quality code and a little ship party at the end of every month. And do you really have have to scrum every day? Uh, yeah, I do have to scrum every day, and it gets very complex because now my job, my life has, in my retirement, as Carla said, it has gotten far more complex because I'm dealing with people whose work weeks are not Monday through Friday. So I have people who work from Sunday to Thursday, I have people who work from Saturday to, you know, Wednesday or whatever it is. So I'm doing Scrum literally every day, seven days a week. And, you know, even on, you know, Thanksgiving morning and Christmas morning, because those are work days over there. And, um, you know, driving to my mom's house on Christmas on my cell phone doing a Scrum was a pretty interesting experience. So, I mean, what's your role really in this project? Are you the owner of the the requirements? Or are you just running the Scrums? And what happens is I'm working with a startup, and I'm one of the founders. I'm not going to talk much about it at the moment. But what we're doing is I'm, in, I'm the business owner of the process. So I have the requirements from my business partner, and I'm pretty much effectively the scrum master. So my role is to communicate those requirements to our team overseas and then do the daily scrum to make sure that the, you know, ultimately as I do the daily scrum to facilitate the development process for the developers, but based on that, I can also give a status back to, you know, back to the other business owners. And just to give you a good indication is we flew over to Egypt to start off with that remote team, and that's probably a best practice is always go in face for the kickoff, meaning have the team together. I don't care how much it costs. 
You know, have, you're going to save it down the road. Bring the team together when you start the actual project, which we did. We were together for a week in Cairo. Not only myself, my business partner, who's not even technical, but he gave a presentation for an entire day of the, of the application, the business model, everything to the developers. So the developers have buy-in. They feel like members of the team. And then what happens is we started that in late December and we're releasing our first beta, um, just in a week or so. So awesome. Yeah, it's early March right now. So, you know, really just over two months to get our first beta out the door. And that's two deliverables. We actually, that's our third sprint. At the end of our third sprint, we will um, have a working beta that's pretty much functionally complete. And you all know what the difference between that is, right? Functionally complete means we've done all the features. It goes to the database. Now it's time for, you know, users to actually kind of test it. Right. It also sounds like you're really acting as the product manager. You've, you've handled the requirements and, and are largely controlling the contact to the development process and so forth. So the rest of the company really has no visibility into development. Correct. So I'm, not only am I the scrum master, I have a dual role as kind of the product lead. However, I'm not the guy who came up with all the requirements. The guy who came up with all the requirements was more the marketing guy, my business partner. And I just translated that into, you know, as much of the technical requirements as I could come to. Right. And I, cho- and I helped the developers choose the direction of each sprint because, you know, you have to kind of list where things are going so the developers can go in that particular direction. But I tell you, it, it was pretty cool because, you know, I won't tell you too much about the, about the um, project, but it's kind of like Expedia.com, which is, you know, you're buying and selling, you know, travel online, even though we are not a travel website. And what's interesting is, so we have things like search for inventory, you know, buy inventory, get confirmations. Each one of those was like a week-long sprint. And the developer took charge because we made that investment up front where we traveled to Cairo and sat with the developers and explained to him the business and walked him through kind of a little prototype that we did in, in PowerPoint, literally in PowerPoint. And the developer is really kind of dictating things. He, I mean, in a good way, right? The developer's turning around saying, okay, you know, I really think the next sprint, you know, after search should be buy, <laughs> you know, and after we buy something, the next sprint should be confirmation and activity pages. So the developer was making decisions based upon how a user would work the application itself, and the developer made the decisions of what to do next, and he brought them to me, and I find that more than acceptable. So it was a very collaborative experience using Scrum in that environment. Now, was this just a dev, or was this like a development lead, like running a team of developers? I have one developer on this particular project. Oh, really? Yeah. So... We have one developer and one QA person, and I have the scrum with them every day. And that developer has matured into a lead, and I'll be honest with you, when I first met him, he's never used scrum before. He was used to just getting specifications and typing in code. So I really think that we've empowered the developer, has mitigated some of the risk of the thrashing because he's not turning around saying, well, what is this requirement and waiting eight hours for me to come online? He's looking at things that he knows how to do. He puts that into a sprint. He works in those sprints, and then he asks me to give him clarification on the next sprint while he's working on the, you know, on the, on the current sprint. Did we nail down what you got, how you guys do scrums remotely? Uh, yes, we did. We do the Scrum over Skype, and yeah, we don't right. use we don't use video all the time, but we use Skype uh, mostly with voice, sometimes in chat, audio and chat, audio and chat, exactly. And 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 you make a point of calling out everybody on the call for a contribution during the Scrum. Oh, that is the case. So we had um, a one instance where a team member. This is a funny story. Team member couldn't make the Scrum, and what's pretty cool is. When you have these scrums with remote teams, they're desperate to talk to you as well. Right. Because, you know, they're a little lonely. A lot of them work at home. And so, you know, you're not really worried about them goofing off, but you want to give them that direction. Right. So one team member sent me an SMS and said, oh, um, there's a power problem and I can't get online. I don't know if he was lying or not, but I, I know where he lives. So I used Google Earth and some combination of local search and found an internet cafe less than a kilometer from his house. I used Skype out. I called the internet cafe. I asked them if they had power. They said, of course we do. 
And then I sent an SMS back to my developer said, Hey, go to this internet cafe. And he was there nice. within 30 minutes. So that's cool. Yeah, it's a kind well, of funny story. How about how about some of the issues that you've had? I mean, I know you base the basic issue is the breakdown in communications, but can you tell us any stories about um, some of the challenges that that having these remote uh, guys has has really ha- maybe some that you haven't been able to overcome? I, I think the big problem is keeping the staff, you know, happy and motivated. I mean, you're only talking to them, you know, every and, and keeping them a part of the team. So. Yeah. One of my first experiences with remote developers was not in an overseas outsourcing environment. It was back about eight years ago when I was CTO of Corzin. We had a web farm, a very sophisticated web farm, down in North Carolina, and our offices were up in New York City. So we had an an IT administrator employed full-time who lived in North Carolina who physically managed the servers. You know, things like RDP weren't as um, prevalent back in 1999 and 2000. So this person was a full-time employee, you know, the same medical benefits and 401k and everything else that all the other folks on my staff had, but it was a little difficult to make him feel like a member of the team. So we tried our hardest, and we, we flew him up a number of times, obviously, per year, and our weekly Friday staff meeting he always would phone into, but that is a big challenge that's impossible to solve. All you right. can do is mitigate it. All you right. can do is kind of account for it. And there are creative ways to do it depending on the size of the team and the budget that you have. Um, I'll give you my absolute favorite way, and this is the best way to do it if you have the time and the money. And the team has to be of a certain size. Back in the late 90s, about 97, 98, when the dot-com era was getting pumped up, I did some consulting work for Priceline.com, who amazingly are still su- still surviving, still around. Scotty, you come up here, I... Can't read the cue card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, those Bill, Bill Shatner ads, and I, I find it funny that Bill Shatner just won't go away. Like in the Bill, in the famous now YouTube of Bill Gates' last day at work when he calls Barack Obama and he goes, "Hey, it's Bill," and Barack goes, "Bill Shatner." <laughs> <laughs> It just brought me back to the dot-com era with, you know, Bill Shatner singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Oh, you know, God, just, don't go there. <laughs> Man. I did. <laughs> Climb in the back with your head in the clouds, and you're gone, 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 gone. It's Bill Shatner, Priceline.com. <laughs> I was just talking to somebody from Priceline. Bill Shatner still owns a good chunk of that company. but Does he really? He really does. They gave him a whole – it was an interesting advertising – um, an, an, an interesting way to have a, a, a corporate sponsor do advertising. You, you give them a stake in the company. So, wow. Yeah. So back to our friends at Priceline. Yeah. I, I did learn a lot about Bill Shatner while I spent some time up hanging out with the folks at Priceline. Up by you, I think, Carl. They're up in Connecticut. Yep. And um, I learned a lot from um, a guy named Ron Rose, the CTO of Priceline, who's, who was there for about 10 years. He only recently just left. And believe it or not, Ron had 800 people in India. Wow. Is that, and he had, he had hundreds of people in, in Norfolk, Connecticut. So just imagine the amount of, you know, remote team issues he had, you know. So I mean, right. I, I'm having problems with eight guys in Egypt and he had 800 guys in India. And I learned from him what he did was something pretty interesting. So he used the staff augmentation model where these were, you know, additions to his staff. So he considered them people who worked for Priceline. And he engaged with a local man on the ground and, and started building a division of Priceline, you know, right there in India. And he, you know, obviously engaged with local recruiters and all of that, doing all the appropriate things. So he had what he called the staff rotation model. And the staff rotation model had every person within a two-year period at Priceline would spend about the equivalent of about two months in a different office. Hmm. So people from the Connecticut office would travel and work side-by-side with people from India. People from the Indian office would come and rotate and travel to the United States and work side-by-side with people in, you know, up in Connecticut. Obviously, as you can imagine, we ran into some weird visa issues, and the practice 
was really limited to more like 30-day stints. And um, obviously some people who had young children, you know, there were, there were people, there were exceptions to this rule, didn't work perfectly, but the spirit of it worked great because there was always somebody from Connecticut in India, and there was always somebody from India in Connecticut every single day of the week. So wow. it really was a collaboration between those, you know, it really tried, to, you know, between those developers, there was a collaboration. There was names, it was beyond the names and the faces, right? They would all go out together and, you know, go to lunch together. So they really developed true relationships. It wasn't just some guy behind an email. And I think Richard said it, you know, prior in this episode, email communication is just bad. It just doesn't work right. You know, people will say things that they don't mean in email or, or that they would never say, you know, in, in person. So when you have a relationship with the individual, you're going to potentially, you know, read, see their sarcasm in the email or read, read past what might have been kind of a sternly written email because now you've known them. You've worked side by side with them for those 30 days. It makes the communication far, far simpler. Yeah. Hey, I want to invite you to the 6th Annual Microsoft Financial Services Developer Conference being held at the Marriott Marquis in New York City, March 12th and 13th. Uh, coming right up here. Now in its 6th year, the conference is an excellent opportunity for developers to gain insights into the latest and upcoming Microsoft technologies and solutions as they relate to the financial services industry. With this year's theme being a focus on high-performance computing, Attendees will be hearing from presenters across a wide spectrum of organizations, including Microsoft product managers, key partners, and industry peers. In addition, Microsoft is hosting the second annual Windows in Financial Services Developer Innovator Awards as they recognize industry-leading solutions leveraging the Microsoft development platform. In honor of National Women's History Month in March, they'll be celebrating the accomplishments of female leaders and pioneers in financial services and technology via a live panel with their 2008 Women Leaders of Wall Street. Register today by going to shrinkster.com slash VDK. I, I think that email, effective email, is really a high-trust environment. If you can't hear the person's voice in the email, you don't know them well enough to read the email properly. You're 100% correct, and that was the genius behind Ron Rose's, um, you know, rotation of the developers and IT staff, you know, amongst the offices. And um, as they outsourced in different offices in India, they would actually rotate people even in India between those offices. So everyone had an opportunity to meet them at the end, you know, by the, by the end of about a, a year or two, remember every 30 days or 60 days, someone's rotating, you're, you're meeting somebody, you're meeting new people all the time. So that high trust environment is being built and it also helps in that retention. Back to what Carl said, you know, what's the biggest problem? I was describing my lonely employee down in North Carolina sitting at home. Imagine now if on a very regularly scheduled basis, you're not sitting at home anymore. Or you're not in this remote office, but you're starting to feel like a part of the team. You almost and have to have a morale officer, like a Neelix, you know, somebody who's <laughs> <laughs> Good just, old Neelix. just calling people and, you know, just talking to them and stuff. I mean, you, you, it's a psychological issue, isolation. It completely is a psychological issue. Yeah. And as much as developers might be a little reclusive and enjoy, as Richard said, you know, the, the least interruptions as humanly possible. I truly think that in order to make this remote team work, you need to have that, you know, interaction on a regular basis and some of that face-to-face -face kind of conversation. It's also hard for a manager to do that all the time when they're concer always concerned about, you know, productivity and all that stuff. And then you just have to forget about all that and just go talk to your guys, right, or your girls or whatever. You're absolutely right. So and it's it's great. Yeah. The great thing about that is then me as a manager, it's different when I go because I don't rotate. I just go on extended visits. And I then really do form relationships with the individuals and especially the senior guys there because they're my men on the men and women on the ground and they're the ones doing the hiring. I have the trust in them. And that's another key aspect is you need someone senior that you trust, preferably local. You don't want to send, you know, if you're in New York and you're hiring guys out in Silicon Valley, you don't want to send some New Yorker out to run the show in Silicon Valley. You want to forge a relationship and a partnership with someone in Silicon Valley and let them hire the folks. Same thing if you're going overseas, right? If you're in New York and you're hiring people in the UK or in India, you want somebody on the ground who's local, speaks the language, knows, you know, goes to the user groups, you know, knows the good developers, knows the bad developers. 
But when I go visit overseas or in the remote offices is, you know, we'll go out and the senior guys will take me, you know, they, they always stay at their houses and we forge good relationships. But the nice thing about that is, you know, at nighttime we'll go out or we'll go out to, or if it's at lunch and we can let loose a little bit and they'll see kind of the non-business side of me and the joking around me. And you can always bring that up at a time of distress. Right? You could always circle back to the crazy, you know, evening you had with them six months ago, even a year ago, um, at a time when things are just kind of, you know, the, per- the proverbial, you know, what is hitting the fan. You can always bring it up. Hey, come on, you know, you know, once we, you know, once we finish this sprint, you know, you'll have some time off, and I'll be out visiting in another couple of weeks, and we'll have a crazy night like we did last year. Or we'll something go to a like foreign that. country and get deported. That'll be great. Never, That'd be I've awesome. Never, I've never actually been deported, but I have caused a few international incidences on these trips. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You've been extradited. You've been I, I have extradited, extradited and import, deported are two different two things. Two different things. <laughs> All right. Okay, fine. Um, just out of curiosity, I mean, we sort of talked around this a little bit. So what does thrashing look like over Skype? Oh, goodness. Thrashing over Skype is usually the following. So why are you working so long on X? And some long, non-comprehensible answer, and you just smile because you, you realize it's, it's thrashing. So it's usually a very um, familiar pattern where a developer tells you, oh, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and they start giving you a laundry list of what they've tried, and the, and the one thing they haven't tried is ask somebody else right. for help, right? So that's kind of what it looks like over Skype. It, it looks like, you know, here's a laundry list of reasons why I didn't actually do what I said I was going to do yesterday in the scrum, right? You know, the interesting balance, I think, on all this is you've basically got to get this guy to confess that he's stuck, Right. How do you measure meter consequences around this? I mean, I want the guy to keep talking to me and not clam up, but I also want him to keep producing. I've got to, there's got to be like a pressure on him to get things done. That's the magic I think of Scrum. And one of the other reasons why I went to Scrum, because when you use Scrum, there really are no deliverables until the end of the sprint. So if you have a one week sprint, I could care less that you're thrashing as long as you're going to make that deadline of the entire process. And when you have the traditional, you know, put everything into Microsoft Project, that is a really lousy way of managing a project for this reason. Do I know today that in six months, Patrick is going to be writing the data access layer between, you know, the data table and the customer's table, you know, at 3 p.m., right? There's, the minute you make one of those, it's out of date. So when you're using Scrum, you throw out Microsoft Project, and there really is no deliverable. There's just a commitment that here's what I'm working on today. And a lot of times is, you know, a developer will turn around and say that, oh, this would be really, really easy, and it should only take me a day to two to complete. And by the next Scrum, they've kind of more or less allocated in their mind that they're going to take two days on it. They've realized they've made zero progress in one day. And they know that that ultimate deliverable is the end of the sprint. They're motivated to go meet that deliverable. So the cool thing about it is it, it's really a self-motivating thing because they're, they're, they're trying to meet that sprint. The sprints are short deliverables. So you're never too far behind. How far behind can you get on a two-week deliverable? You really can't get that far behind. unless No you more than really two weeks anyway. <laughs> no more than two weeks, exactly. Unless you bid off really more than you can chew. There's well, and no I often way. wonder if you get into the situation where, you know, a lot of developers start out looking at a problem and going, yeah, that's easy. I'll have that done for you in a couple of days. And next thing you know, they've, they're buried in a, and this is a huge problem. And this is, and this is where the experience of the scrum master comes into play is on the, or the business owner more even than the scrum master is on your very first sprint with a new team or just on a brand new project. Always know that that sprint's going to fail in its estimate. So keep the sprint small, make it more of an architectural sprint. I always try to have like one or two quick one-week architectural sprints to really get ticked off because you're right. The developer bites off more than they can chew, overcommits and underdelivers. So I accommodate for that right up front. And I do that by having very, very short sprints. I actually kind of go in these almost like sprintless, perpetual kind of 10-day modes where 
we say we're in a sprint, but we're really not in a sprint. We're just kind of, I almost call it thrashing. We're just kind of like just, you know, I, I call it, I actually call it exploratory surgery, right? It's usually, as I said, the first week of a project or the next, the beginning of a new deliverable. I'll go for a week or 10 days of this exploratory surgery. We go through the motions. We have a daily scrum. We, we throw a lot of terms, you know, a lot of things at each other. But at the end of the day, we're really only delivering some kind of pieces of architecture um, that will be a foundation for future sprints. I'm all, I also wonder if you sometimes get to situations where you make an architectural error and now you're a half a dozen sprints into the project and realize we need to do a major restructuring here. Well, hopefully well, you're doing other agile practices at the same time, like right. I mean, exactly. Refactoring and exactly. You're you're refactoring. That tends to be less of a problem. That's always the kind of the traditional enterprise architect glued to the Microsoft project. That's usually their criticism of Scrum, but it tends to be more of a criticism than a reality. It does happen. But if you're following other agile practices and you're truly implementing these kind of iterative processes, the chances of that happening are, are far lower than you would think. Okay, slight gear change. Largely the way you've been describing these projects, the team sounds like they're pretty much together. They're all in Egypt or they're all in Pakistan or something like that. Does it really work to have these teams also in multiple locations? What if you had a couple of developers in New York working on the same project as some guys in uh, in Cairo? Well, we um, that's a good question because at Corzin, before we were acquired, we actually were in the model where we had uh, four different teams, well, one team in four different locations. We had, you know, two technical guys, uh, you know, lead developer and developer in New York, plus myself. Then we had a group of people in Cairo, a group of people in India, and we had one pretty decent programmer who was a member of the team, and he was up in Pakistan. So we had four different cities. You could imagine the, um, you know, the scrum. It was a little nuts. It was, it was pretty interesting. I, I've always said I'm doing a scrum over three continents, and, um, but it works. And um, what you need to do is follow those practices to the letter as best you can. You really need to kind of, you know, if you can, rotate the developers through those offices, make sure everyone knows each other, make them feel involved, really be inclusive of those particular developers because, you know, you want them to really keep that communication flow going. So this definitely scales out from as low as having one guy on your team work at home for a few weeks because he's, you know, ill or recovering from something to having a completely disparate team of a couple hundred people in five different time zones, some of them working at home, some of them in offices. The practices are really the same. It just matters of the intensity you're going to apply them. But what's the practical size of a scrum? Like you talk about a couple hundred people. I can't imagine they're all on the phone at the same time. Oh, absolutely not, right? So, I mean, typically the size of a team using agile methodology is going to be no more than 10. I mean, the maximum I've ever really seen in some really large projects, that's actually at the Data Dude project at Microsoft. I think it was about 12 people. And um, what will happen is the, you would have a scrum of scrums, okay? So you'll have uh, the scrum master go in and have a scrum with, each of those smaller teams, and then the scrum masters will get together and have a scrum that rolls up. So that's how scrum can scale in the enterprise. So you have all the scrums down at the team level, then all those scrum masters get together and have a scrum with kind of the uber scrum master. And that will even roll up even higher if, um, you know, if there's that much of a, if that team is that large. Well, at second tier, 10 people to a team, that's 100 people. Right. Well, if you're doing, if you have a team of a thousand people, you're going to potentially have a scrum master who works with three or four of those teams. You're not going to have, a scrum master is not a member of that team. A scrum master is really external to the team and might actually run four or five different scrums. Okay. Right, so that's the way to get them to scale up. You can yeah, actually so and it's not the same as, you I mean, you're doing both scrum master and sort of product owner at the same time. 
Yeah, we've kind of merged those two together. And as I said, I am not a purist. I take a little bit of here and a little bit of there, and you kind of mix it together. And that's my best advice for all the people out in the audience is everything that we've discussed tonight and everything they've read about things like Scrum and, you know, TFS and everything else, take the pieces that are going to be applicable to your environment because every environment is going to be a little different. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Is there one tool that you can't live without? And I, you know, besides Skype, um, for for team development or yeah. just in general? Yeah, for t- for managing the team, the remote team. Obviously, TFS. If, if there's no Team Foundation server, I'm not sure how I would do this. Uh, before Team Foundation server, I was having developers go through firewalls, checking in code on source safe emailing updates, using things like ClickOnce. So a Team Foundation server really has made this a lot easier, the whole team suite. Um, so as large as the way you're using Team Foundation server is just as the, the software check-in essentially generates all the record-keeping around stats of performance for the devs? Right. So the check-in, check-out, bug tracking, uh, that's the capacity we're using Team Foundation server because it's a central repository. And, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, Bob in New York and Joe in Florida are checking out, you know, two things on one project. They're using the same bug tracker all in that nice central repository. So you're using the TFS bug tracker as well. Is it just for bugs or do you find yourself describing features in there as well? We actually, as I said, we use something called Microsoft eScrum, which is e-scrum. a little add-on. Yeah, eScrum. It's a little add-on for Team Foundation Server, and that enables you to do exactly what you just described. You can put in your burn-down list, you know, your, which in Scrum is pretty much your feature list. So we do put those kind of points in there and, and um, enable that for the sprint. Yeah, I would not be able to um, do this without TFS, or I wouldn't be able to scale without TFS, because I did do this before TFS, but I wasn't able to scale. I had much smaller teams when we were doing it without TFS, and it was a catastrophe. I mean, it was just, you know, just trying to get source safe, you know, through VPN, you know, combination of VPN and firewalls. It was a, it was a bit of a pain. Wow, I, I just hopped on to Microsoft's site to look at eScrum 1.0, and the list of features on this thing is stunning. I mean, not it's, just the TFS integration, but also uh, exports to Excel and to Project, if you don't hate Project that much, uh, all the sprint backlog, the product backlog, all the task management, um, multiple hidden, project management. It's amazing. It is a hidden gem. I think that... You know, Microsoft does really well in this department of making these little add-ons, and you just have to find them, unfortunately, because there's just so many for so many different projects. Um, but it really is a fabulous tool. I could, and, you know, as I said, that has made things so much easier because, you know, Carl's original question is there's a piece of technology that you would need to make this distributed team work. And to answer that in kind of its entirety... I would say, you know, you have Team Foundation Server, you have eScrum, you have Skype and Instant Messenger, and then you also have, you know, just the software development methodology of Scrum and having the location-based, you know, having the the local guy on the ground overseas or in New York or wherever it is, you know, roll that all together with potentially even a rotation plan, and, you know, that's really how you make this thing work. I, I also got to think that the daily touch between the devs is a key part of the productivity. Totally is. Before that would happen, and, and what's interesting is I, when I—that's how I really stumbled across Scrum. You know, years and years ago, is you know we had a remote team member, and they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't say anything. You didn't hear. I mean, and the joke was, you haven't heard from Al in a couple days. Uh, something's wrong, you know. And it's funny. He was the one that suggested Scrum. He likes to take credit for that since I speak about about Scrum <laughs> around the world. <laughs> and um, 
So he was the one who described it. At first, I, I have to admit, at first I was like, nah, we don't need that. You know, I was kind of set in my ways. And, you know, good things come to those people who, you know, open their eyes and expand their horizons. Because what I learned, and this wasn't just with that developer, but other developers, if you didn't hear from them in a couple of days, you knew they were thrashing, right? Because why else right. wouldn't you hear from them? If they haven't checked in any code, you know they're probably not goofing off. I mean, you know, I mean unless you're really running a dysfunctional shop. So you kind of check in and you're like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, we have this problem and this problem. And a lot of developers, especially contractors, don't want to admit they're stuck. It's a right. pride thing. Especially it's, you know, in whatever. a group, you know? Especially in a group. How, how about Second Life? Have you taken a look at this, Steve? I have looked at Second Life and I find it a little scary. <laughs> Is there any potential there, though, for for at least um, the assemblance of a social gathering? In as far as getting your developers together, uh, Could yeah, you scrum just, in Second Life, just to have some fun, just to just to have the illusion that you're hanging out together. You know, Carl, I've actually never thought of that, and I'm going to. Um, I'm going to try that and take full credit for it, and only listeners <laughs> and only listeners of this show will um, you know, <laughs> know really know the truth. Full of shit. I'm yeah. going to give exactly. I'm going to give myself a big mohawk, a big green mohawk, <laughs> and you're going to have a T-shirt that says "I am Carl Franklin" on it. <laughs> I could. I'll just say CF. CF. Um, no one will know what I'm talking about. But. Uh, yeah, I thought of that. Not at the first, I thought of online games. You know, so stuff that you can do together remotely. That's sort of social and team building and all that kind of stuff. And but you know, with games, some people aren't into them, and then they get alienated. And you know, it's that kind of stuff. So I mean, if it probably would work for playing an online for playing an online game if if everybody was into it. But um, but I like- you don't even need to play. You know, I. As an early adopter of all these wacky technologies, I knew that like Ultima Online, which was one of the very first massive multiplayer games, when I saw people using the bar in the town as a chat room, that they go there and drink mead and talk to each other. Right. Right. I said, that is not playing the game anymore. You're just hanging out. Right, but that's when I thought of Second Life as sort of just a way to hang out uh, or or get the sense that you're hanging out. I mean, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have Second Life on a, on another monitor where there's your devs and they're all just sort of hanging out? Well, I also wonder about the power of the whiteboard. You know, so much gets done standing over the whiteboard, doodling on a model and arguing through how it works together. I just wonder how you represent that in a remote team. Well, we do that. There's remote whiteboarding tools. There's a third-party add-in to Skype that we use that does exactly that. And it's pretty cool because you can actually have more than one person control ink at the same time and it's different colors. And then when they start fighting with each other, sometimes I'll start erasing some of my dead stuff. I wrote, I wrote <laughs> one of those once. I wrote a program <laughs> like that. Seriously. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes in these meetings, when we, when we move out of the scrums and into the, the um, problem-solving meetings, you know, I, I kind of devolve from a manager to you know, to a fellow dev almost, and I start arguing with them, and, um, you know, then we get, you know, we'll joke around, and, um, you know, a lot of times, as I said, I'll start, you know, when he's writing something very, very important, I'll start erasing it as soon as he writes it. <laughs> you have to inject some humor, and the great thing about that goes back to that kind of face-to-face, and the same thing with your Second Life idea, right? So I have the whiteboard, and I'm joking around a little bit, and what will also happen, or or in the Second Life, because they know my personality, they know that I'm extremely serious about getting deliverables and deadlines, but they also know that I can kind of, you know, let off a little steam. And the staff loves it when you kind of make a little fun of the senior guy over there. Or if there is a prima donna, you know, you pull them out on it. And, you know, the staff will love it. So it is a lot of fun to do that. You, very you have this close tie, which I don't entirely understand, with the Middle East. How about the cultural issues? I mean, there's there's obvious difference, which I don't even think are always apparent between Indians and, and the Egyptians and so forth. And, and you've got to contend with that if you're going to be productive. I have Egyptian Muslim women working with um, Christian um, Egyptian men. I have Hindus in India working with Muslims in Pakistan, you know, countries that have fought wars with each other. And I really think that the younger generation, they're used to this already. They're in the chat rooms already. So they, they, um, 
the technology has kind of transcended the border. And as Richard said, I do have this, you know, weird connection to the Middle East. And I've worked with, you know, a lot, a lot of my staff is female in, in the Middle East. And, um, you know, they're pretty religious. I mean, Richard has met them. You know, they wear yeah. the entire outfit. And the other thing about that, though, is you can still talk to them as a person online. Because I think in person, uh, a Muslim woman gives a little more deference to a man online. They're just going to kind of tell you what they're thinking. And as a <laughs> developer, right to their manager, I have seen zero issues of a female developer unwilling to kind of come up and stand up to their their kind of male manager. It's really, I think the technology is an, kind of an equalizer. Um, That's great. I, I also happen to know, Stephen, I'll call you out on this particular one, that you make a point of visiting Egypt regularly and Pakistan regularly and meeting with their families. Because I think that's very much a cultural element that you go and you shake their father's hand and and, oh. and, and treat him respectfully. I think that goes a long way to sort of uh, working within the culture. So I, I have spent a lot of a lot of time and effort building those type of relationships. And I have eaten many, many meals at the houses of my staff and employees. And I have to tell you that it's, it over there, it's, you know, you, you would not think of doing that in the United States or Canada or, you know, in Western Europe, but over there, that's how business is done. It's, you know, you do it, you break bread together and things become very personal in that respect. And, um, it's something I had to get used to because I'm not used to being, um, you know, friendly with my staff's mom and dad. But when you have a 21-year-old Muslim daughter working for this man in New York, you know, those those parents are legitimately concerned. Uh, you know, their daughter comes home and says, I'm working on the Internet for a man in the United States, right? So you're you're a conservative Muslim father of your young Muslim daughter, and she's out, you know, working over the Internet. You You fear. So the way to mitigate that is to actually go and meet them and spend time with them, break bread. Well, and you dragged me to one of the one of their homes. I did, uh, and the and the dads look at me up and down like like he's going to kill me until I showed him photos of my daughters, and then everything was fine. Right? <laughs> yeah, he's like, "Who's this extra man? You know, I, yeah, I who's the other guy? <laughs> who's this extra man you're bringing along? <laughs> I don't get, know what a radio. I don't know what .dotnet rocks is. And get that pulled pork out of here. Oh man." <laughs> <laughs> and I was just thinking, you know, uh, one of the terms they use a lot in Scrum is the the, the pig and the chicken rolls. Yeah. <laughs> from from the joke, uh, hey, let's open a restaurant that sells bacon and eggs, and the pig says, "No, no, no, I'd be committed, but you'd only be involved." Ooh. Right. And I just think, you know what, pig humor doesn't work in Egypt. That's no, not funny. Not funny. Yeah, pig humor doesn't work. But um, it's interesting. Is you start, you know, what's interesting is you'll see on a weekend your developer online. And they'll ping you. You know, it's late night, and they're just kind of chatting with people. They don't want to go to bed. And you sometimes get into weird cultural, um, you know, kind of conversations. And it's, it's funny, you know, because, you you know, like, you'll mention something, and you'll bring up, like, you know, I just had this great pizza. Oh, man, I had this bacon, you know, bacon <laughs> omelet, whatever. And then you go, oh, yeah, but you can't eat pig, you know, or something right. like that. And they laugh. They think it's funny, you know. And they, yeah. they actually they actually kind of cherish those type of conversations because, they're almost, I would say, kind of bragging to their friends that they have these relationships with foreigners, right? Well, actually- that was the other experience of going to Cairo with you, was when we those the Muslim girls dragged us to the mall, and I realized we were a sideshow. We were <laughs> drinking hot chocolate, and they were bringing their friends by to have, be photographed Check with Check out the freaks! For the yeah. whole night. That every was the night. Minutes, yeah, every 15 minutes, a new set of friends mysteriously, just randomly, coincidentally, were at the same shopping mall and took photos of Richard and I. Wow. And, you know, they tell you, I'm an, as you, you said, Carl, you know, in my bio, I have an MBA. And one of the things they taught you in MBA school in the international business semester was, you know, be sensitive to cultural norms. You're never supposed to talk about religion, sex, and politics. And, Richard, what do we talk about all night? The, that's all they want to talk about. But, you know, I would point out, we rarely put barriers up to those kinds of conversations. I mean, the whole reason to go to the Middle East and to these other countries is to understand their point of view. So I, I don't think at any point am I necessarily saying, what do I believe? I'm trying to understand what they believe. Exactly. And we had just fabulous conversations that they still talk about. And they, you know, and they, they still look forward to our future visits. And whenever there's new staff getting hired, 
I'll be honest with you, this is part of the recruitment process. They're like, oh, you're going to meet all these people because our company works with this overseas company, you know, that being us in the United States or Canada. And, you know, that's a selling point. People, the younger generation want to work with the people overseas. They, they feel that they can learn a lot about development because a lot of them are entrepreneurial, want to start something on their own one day. And they just figure they'll meet people with other points of view. So it's, it's really a, um, it's a two-way street. I learn a lot from them as well. And not only, not only just technical things. I learn, of course, from them, you know, technically every day, but I also learn from them just culturally as well. Steve, we're about out of time. Is there uh, any, anything else that we missed that you want to shout out to? Um... I, I think that uh, we hit all the main points. If anyone's working with remote teams, you know, even if it is one person home, you know, from, from that team or if it's the entire team spread across multiple countries and time zones, just get your technology up to speed, right? Get your team foundation server and make sure you use Skype or, or any kind of webcasting. And then, you know, seriously start looking at things like Scrum. So I really think those are the best practices. And if you can do some type of rotation strategy, that would work as well. All right, man. Mets going to win the World Series? Ever? So the Mets win the World Series ever. We have to stop well, the Boston on. sports apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in 1969, the New York Jets went into the Super Bowl against the, you know, Super Bowl. Were you just Super born? I was not even born yet. Um, <laughs> but the New York Jets went into the Super Bowl and defeated the heavily, heavily faded favorite, um, Indianapolis Colts. And everyone said the Colts are going to win, and the Jets had the upset of upsets. And then later that year, the Mets won the World Series. So the New York Giants went against all odds and defeated the New England Patriots, <laughs> cheaters. And um, <laughs> so if history no can comment. repeat itself, I figured, Carl, if history can repeat itself, the Mets should, um, should win the World Series this year. So that's what I'm going with. You heard it here first. March 4th, 2008, Steve Forte declares the Mets will win the World Series. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. All right, Steve, thanks again. It's always fun. All righty. I'll talk to you guys later. All right, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, and we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.